0: You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP, Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at www.wvew.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. We're on the air every Sunday at noon, or you can catch us on SoundCloud or iTunes Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. My name is Nina Kunimoto. Um, I am a local educator and also a graduate student at UMass Boston. And um, our guest today is Dr. David Omotoso Stovall. He is a professor of educational studies and African-American studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. He is the author of Born Out of Struggle, Critical Race Theory, School Creation, and the Politics of Interruption. And he's the co-author of 21st Century Jim Crow Schools, The Impact of Charters on Public education. So um, Dr. Stovall and I uh, spend the hour talking about um, abolition and um, what does black-white solidarity mean. Uh, We talk about education uh, and also about youth rising up during this time and I also have him reflect on two uprisings uh, which he experienced and wrote about. Stay tuned and we're going to ease into the show with um, August Green featuring Brandy Optimistic. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio, making connections and deepening our understanding on Sundays at noon locally, or you can catch us on SoundCloud at Indigo Radio or iTunes Podcast. Um, You are also listening to us via the local radio station, uh, WVEW Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, and we were just listening to August Green, Optimistic, featuring Brandy. So today, our guest is Dr. David Omotoso Stovall, who is a professor of educational studies and African-American studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago. And he is an author of a couple of books, his latest 21st century Jim Crow schools. In this first segment, I ask Dr. Stovall, About something he wrote in 2016 in the special edition of ERA, or the American Educational Research Association, Division B newsletter, Black Lives Matter. He said, I write this note from a city that's, quote, lit. Young people in Chicago use the term to describe an event that's lively or is in the process of becoming lively. I'm most familiar in hearing it from them in the phrase, quote, the spot is lit. Instead of the city being in a space that's lively for enjoyment, the city is lit due to the disgust, angst, and perpetual reminder that certain segments of the black population have been deemed disposable in perpetuity. To their credit, many have not succumbed to their own frustrations, but continue to organize in the tradition of Black freedom fighters from the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries in the U.S. Despite media attention dedicated to the concerns of Black people in the U.S., history reminds us that the current moment is nothing new. Instead, we should understand it as a moment of retrenchment to the Dred Scott decision of 1857, when the Supreme Court decided that black people had no rights, that whites were bound to respect. So I asked him, I mean, this could have been written in 2020, right? In in the current moment, in the current uprisings. Um, and this was written in the wake of um, the murder of Laquan McDonald in uh, Chicago, which um, Dr. Stovall will go into. Um, and I also... Ask him about um, student
1: involvement in the current uprisings. When you go back to the murder of Laquan McDonald, I think there's, a, there's something that comes into view that's very mm-hmm. similar to when we think about George Floyd, uh, Breonna Taylor, and Armad Arbery. And this yep. is just this thing around, you know, Mark Lamont Hill talks about it this precarity of Black life. Right mm. so this thing around you know like your if you have interaction with police uh, as a black person there is a risk of death right and i yeah. think that's a lot of times people uh think about that as extreme but we can see <laughs> in all these instances that it's not only not extreme but it's actually a daily depiction of life so 2014, when, and remember, I think it's important for your listeners, remember, Laquan McDonald's murder Mm -hmm. was only uncovered because a reporter filled out a FOIA form that the mayor blocked Mm. so that we didn't actually get viewing of the murder until 2016. And the mayor withheld the video uh, during an election, right? So he, he, he suppressed the video to win an election, right? So mm-hmm. and and how he got away with, a, with not being charged with obstruction still baffles me, but it baffles me in the kind of linear world, but in the world of understanding racism and white supremacy, mm-hmm. it makes it makes perfect sense. So right. I think this understanding around what has changed is that more people are reminded. Mm. But this thing around, I think young folks are saying, well, damn, this happened to us four years ago, right? I mean, we've seen this time and time again. And I think what we're seeing now is the building up of frustrations Mm. and then people actually moving on those frustrations. But it's very similar than what we've known. And not just the events of 2014 in terms of Laquan McDonald's murder, but- Mm -hmm literally what Black people have known in time immemorial, right? That the idea of police protection is a misnomer, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you have particular relationships with individual police officers, structurally police departments are not there to protect you. Structurally, they're based around an assumption of your criminality before your humanity, right? So I Mm -hmm. think this thing around really putting that into context when we look at something like uh, Laquan McDonald's death. And then, you know, uh, locally here in Chicago, you know, there were some other folks who were uh, killed, like Rekia Boyd, right, who was mm-hmm. shot at a party, right, where mm-hmm. cops drives up to the party, reaches out, uh, reaches across his car and just shoots into a crowd. Oh, man. Right. So this thing around, you know, how and the precarity of black life, Mm -hmm. the assumption is, well, they must have been doing something wrong. It's like, no, this dude drove up to a party of folks because of a he felt that they were being too loud. And because he was so entitled to tell them to to calm down. And when they rebuked him, he just fires into the crowd. Wow. Right. So this thing around really and then walks away with no (laughs) with no sentencing. Right. So mm-hmm. this thing around putting all of this into context, I mean the frustrations just mount. And mm-hmm. now if we think about twenty fourteen and now, it's literally folks just saying, I mean, we, we're still fed up. I think that's a right. that's uh the best way for me to frame it in terms of really understanding. It.
0: But putting this also just like everything that you had said, you know, um, going back to um, Rakia Boy, but even it's even in a larger context, right? I mean, the Chicago Police has a history. Just I mean, just its own existence is anti-black it, it, mm-hmm. within the Chicago Police. So I, I think like these are smaller events, even within like a larger. And then the police itself, right? It being right.
1: emerging out of, of out of a system of enslavement. Yeah, it's two. they are two really important books. Uh, about and the I think the stuff that you were talking about structurally with Chicago, really surrounds around John Burge, right? So John mm, yeah. Burge was an officer who was uh, a sergeant in Area Three, and he was notorious for torturing uh black men into confessions. So uh Flint Taylor, actually uh, from the People's Law Center here in Chicago, wrote a book called The Torture Machine, mm-hmm. actually about. John Burge. And then there's a, um, a book by a guy named Simon Balto called Occupied Territory. And it actually provides a history mm-hmm. of the police to Black neighborhoods here in Chicago. So mm-hmm. like I said, it's a, it's a structural component that we have right. to think about when we talk about uh, race, racism, white supremacy, and really understanding that structurally, Police departments were never intended to protect life.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, WVEWLP, Brattleboro, your local access community radio station. Um, You can also find Indigo Radio on um, SoundCloud. Uh, Just look for Indigo Radio. And you can also find us on iTunes podcast and um, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram. Uh, my name is Nina Kunimoto and I've been interviewing uh, Dr. David Stovall who is professor of educational studies and African-American studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Um, his most recent book is 21st century Jim Crow schools, the impact of charters on public education. And I'm speaking to him today, not just about education but about the youth uprisings, Um, The uprisings in Chicago uh, in 2016 and the current uprisings in 2020. And he really, in the first part, took us through what he calls um, the precarity of Black life, which is so crucial to understand when we're thinking about education and when one is a teacher in front of Black and Brown students. Um, In this next part, he takes us through. I asked him about the youth and how crucial the youth are uh, in for the future, not only for the future, but also in creating a new society. Um, and he quoted Franz Fanon and he said that the youth will either fulfill their destiny or betray it. Um, I think that's a really poignant statement. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about Education and when we're talking about youth uprisings, it, it we cannot delink it from the conversation around abolishing the police. And um on July 2nd, there was an amazing talk that was facilitated by um Mariam Kaba on Haymarket Books, and um they were Uh, Mariam Kaba was in conversation with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law about abolish policing and not just the police. Um, And Stovall also talks about that it can't just be reform. Um, I think it was Maya Shenwar in abolish policing said that reform is a treadmill and that, you know, you're on a treadmill with the tentacles of white supremacy and it is, you can't Get out of it. The system is structured um, for, for Black lives to not survive or not be able to live within this system, um, not with dignity. So, uh, continuing, let's continue with uh, David Stovall.
1: I mean, I think, again, you know, being a student of history, mm-hmm. I think it's important that there are these moments historically that the current moment can learn from. So I think about this moment Mm -hmm. in terms of what Frantz Fanon said about Mm -hmm. young people, right? They will either fulfill their destiny or betray it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is now the moment where young people are fulfilling their destiny to say, look, if I'm going to be in this world, the way it currently exists is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's, that's the critical for me, that's the critical juncture. And I Mm -hmm. think young people are constantly reminding us of you can't, we can't sit and be numb to this. Mm -hmm. Right. And because we can't sit, sit and be numb to it, we now have to think about not reforms, but really abolition. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's a that's an important push that I'm seeing from young folks saying, like, look, this stuff has been the the equivalent of a putrid turd. We don't want a bow on a putrid turd. Mm -hmm. We want something different. Flush the turd down the toilet. We need something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And and it's not reforming. It's not reforming a thing that was structurally never meant to do right by you. Right. Right. And I think that's a. That's a really important push that I see now coming from young folks. and I think there's a there a historical precedence to this, right? You know, when, we look, when we look at people organizing for justice and humanity, mm-hmm. you see, and this is across the world, right? You see people looking to black folks in the states and how they have responded to the current moment and what they're willing to do to build things anew, right? And I think that's a really important point. So like when we talk about this very small window that Mm -hmm. we have to really kind of move on these things, I think now is an opportune moment that's fueled by young people saying, look, this current, we're not trying to reform anything. Mm -hmm. We need something new. I think that's a a huge contribution uh, in this current moment. You
0: know, I teach um, undergraduates, mm-hmm. and I teach in a course called Global Social Problems. And you know, I have them read Walter Rodney, and you know, mm-hmm. I make they understand what uh, police and prison abolition is. But it's it's so interesting the immediate rejection. Like, what are you talking about? You know, no more police. What are we going to do with a rapist? And you know, and I-
1: yeah, I think there's a couple of ways to put it forward. And like I said. Uh, Ruby Gilmore's uh, piece in the intercept is excellent and I think mm-hmm. another thing that to, to put forward and this is kind of the organization critical resistance has been mm-hmm. doing when we talk about abolition we're talking about abolishing the things that cr- that get us into this moment of dehumanization right mm. so the prison is only the the final space of solidifying the dehumanization. We haven't mm-hmm. talked about lack of health care, lack of mm-hmm. healthy food, lack of quality education, lack of uh, viable living wage employment, mm-hmm. lack of quality education, right? So housing, we, mm-hmm. housing, right? So these things, so if we, these are the things that get folks closer to the carceral state.
2: Mm-hmm. And when we
1: look at the carceral state, if we, even if we just look at it historically, right? The prison population in the United States and the documentary 13th does a good job around this. The prison population in the United States explodes from 1970 to 2000, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some some spaces, it it almost increases by 700%, right? And to other folks, I always put this to them and saying, well, if you look at any measure of crime data and when Mm -hmm. you ask police around whether or not more police prevent crime, the answer almost unequivocally is no, mm-hmm. right? So now when we think about this, so we know more police don't prevent crime. We know what gets folks in proximity in proximity to crimes, which are largely infractions committed for survival, mm-hmm. but yet, we still have this rhetoric around bad people, so one right. thing uh Ruthie Gilmore always says well let's put let's put the let's let's take into account folks who are who are there for capital murder, rape, mm-hmm. or any any form of physical violation. Mm-hmm. That's less than ten percent of the folks who are currently incarcerated, yeah. Right. So now so if you think about that, right, that's that's less than 10 percent of the folks who are currently incarcerated. Right. The majority of folks are incarcerated for some form of debt mm-hmm. or inability to pay bail and now have decided that a plea bargain, which actually mm-hmm. comes with a sentence, is the best structure.
3: Right.
1: So when we talk about abolition. We're talking about eliminating those things that get folks to prison, right? Mm-hmm. And I would even take it a little bit further, right? So when we talk about a school abolition, right? So school is very different from education. Yeah. School or schooling is this yeah. process where you are rewarded for your capacity to demonstrate how well you know order and compliance And Mm -hmm. how how well you demonstrate your proximity to regurgitate the rules of whiteness. Right, exactly. So this thing around education being something different because education is going to have you ask questions of -hmm. the school, right? Right. So now we talk about a prison abolition. It's like, look, you got something that is based on the backs of certain people that we've never addressed. I mean, from slavery to debt, the war on drugs I mean so this this thing around so when people talk about a prison abolition we're talking about eliminating those processes that get folks in those precarious positions and I think that's often missed because like I said you have it in your classes I have it in my classes when I say abolition everybody's like what do you mean you're just gonna blow up all the prisons and all the and everybody on the inside is just gonna walk up walk freely around the world it's like no, no we have to think about that differently and we have to think about Right. What the carceral state is and how the carceral mm. state operates in the United States and how the carceral state is foundational to the United States. And I think that's that's important because, you know, everybody's kind of into these things around upholding, quote unquote, American ideals. And my question is like, well, if we look at a if the Constitution is a document written by racist slaveholders, mm-hmm. why wouldn't they reflect? What's currently happening right now? Right. I mean, like, and it's again, I think, and going back to your earlier question, it's young people who are holding folks' feet to the fire and say, look, this reform thing is just Mm -hmm. not it. Like, there's no way that we should be wrestling with reform. Right now is an opportunity to say, here's what we need to be doing. Right. And the same goes with, you know, any. Questions around the defunding of the police, right? So here in Chicago, you know, Chicago Police Department accounts for forty percent of the city of Chicago's budget. Mm Forty percent, right? So I mean, like this, this close to half, (laughs) right? I mean, so this type of space, so and and what's that? What's the intent behind that, right? So who is being policed, surveilled, Hmm. detained? Or what have you, right? I think we have to right. really think about that in a different way. And I think abolition allows us to re-envision what it is that we're actually in, right? To build something new.
0: Right, and I always like to say that, you know, people make history and mm-hmm. that we have to do the thinking as people to, as you say, re-envision what could be and what is humanizing. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, the Brattleboro Public Access Radio Station, WVEW. And we've just been listening to uh, Dr. David Omotoso-Stoval, who is professor of educational studies and African-American studies at the University of Illinois Chicago, And he's been talking to us both about uh, to abolish policing and also, you know, the youth being in the forefront of demanding the abolishment, not just reform, as he said, but abolishing policing. And we mentioned in our conversation, Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore. She spoke with The Intercepted on June 10th, 2020, Um, is a great two part talk with Ruth Wilson Gilmore that is incredibly informative. You really want to understand what it means to abolish the police and also abolish policing, not just the police. Um, if you look up uh, on Thursday, July 2nd, 2020, um, at Haymarket Books, they uh, had a, a presentation um, facilitated by Miriam Kaba with Maya Shenwar and Victoria Law, which is also great in understanding what abolish policing means and what that means for communities and, and also goes so much into detail uh, about impact on Black women and women of color, and also um, how the conservative right is latching onto the privatization of police as part of defunding the police. And I think that's an important conversation and an important thing to watch out for and to think about um, when we're thinking about abolishing the police. We're going to take a little music break. We're going to listen to Lauren Hill, um, Black Rage. And we'll get back to our conversation with Dr. Stovall on Black-white solidarity and what it means for teacher education and teachers in general, because we cannot de-link abolishing the police um, and youth uprisings and uprisings in general from teachers who are in front of Black and Brown students, because those students are within the tentacles of white supremacy. Um, so Black let's uh take a little break with Lauren Hill.
4: Black rage, can come from all these kinds of Black rage is founded on blatant denial, squeeze economics, subsistence survival, deafening silence and social control. Black rage is founded on. like really-
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, WBEW, which is Brattleboro's local access radio station. Um, You can catch us, Indigo Radio, here at noon on the station on Sundays, or you can catch us anytime on SoundCloud. Just look us up, Indigo Radio, um, or you can listen to us on Apple iTunes podcast. Um, You can also... um, stay up to date on some of the things that we do. We are a group of educators. Um, We do community organizing. We do study groups. Um, We have a a deconstruction of whiteness study group that is starting on July 14th. Kicking it off with a showing of um, the Great White Hoax on July 7th. Check us out on um, Facebook. We have our events on there. I have been speaking with um, Dr. David Omotoso Stovall. He is professor of educational studies and African-American studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He talked to us about the importance of youth pushing for abolishing the police and abolish schooling. And those things cannot be delinked from education. At the very heart of our conversation really is education. It's all linked together. And so in the next segment, I asked Dr. Stovall about black-white solidarity, mainly because between 80 and 85 percent of teachers in the United States nationally in public schools, according to a 2019 publication, is 80 to 85 percent white a uh, female, middle class, white. So that means that most of the teachers that are in schools in front of growing population of black and brown students are white and female. So my question to Dr. Stovall was, what does black white
1: solidarity look like? And I think it can, there can be some, there can be some progress but it has to be ones where it has to be rooted in the broader white society saying there are things that we have ignored and not paid attention to. And in mm-hmm. our accountability, here's what we will do. That's the starting point, right? So, And, and I think yeah. that's that's the thing that irks people the most, right? Because mm-hmm. the, the conversation is usually, well, my family never owned slave, blah, blah, blah. That's never been the issue. right? The issue is we live in a society that was based on a racist, classist, ageist, sexist system. Mm -hmm. And the reforms have not given folks justice, but it has given folks more of the same. So now, if you're willing to shift that, the issue starts with self. So if you talk about solidarity, solidarity means that you are willing to work on something, but at the same time, you have this internal reflection, Mm-hmm. and then an external reflection. So in the Young Lords party or in the Black Panther party, yeah. they used to have this thing called criticism and self-criticism, mm-hmm. right? So now how, so if we talk about this solidarity, it can't be white people leading the movement for black lives, right? Mm-hmm. right? It's white folks saying, how are they accountable to what they know they have known to exist and what is willing to be done with themselves first? before mm-hmm. talking about anything around supporting Black people, right? Because you can throw money at struggle, right? And there's there's a lot of history that's being mm-hmm. written now about how money was thrown uh, at the Black Freedom Movement with right. very uh, different results. So I think this is the moment for folks to say, money will not address the issues here. It's going to take folks to take a look inward, to get to any understanding of equity or justice for those who have been wronged. Yeah, I think one of the things is really start to think about, uh, so the French philosopher Andre Gortz uses this term that you often hear in abolition discussions around non-reformist reforms, Mm -hmm. which really just mean the work that we do in the meantime to build towards abolition. Right? right so now when we start to think about those non-reformist reforms and what those would look like one of the things and you alluded to it earlier is changing who's in the teaching force right I mean like that, mm. that's that's something that we can actively do right if yeah. you're talking about you know shifting resources what would it mean to support cohorts of students of color to actually right. uh, become become teachers right the second thing, what would it mean to now really call out folks like Pearson and mm-hmm. who has atpa TPA, who actually runs this kind of extortion racket, teachers? Right. I mean, like right. killing that. Right. I mean, and literally as oh, a process, yeah. moving force to abolition, killing that. I mean, like mm-hmm. the, the most egregious thing to me about atpa TPA is that mm-hmm. we know that teaching is contextual. So yeah. why would we hire people to view someone teaching who has no idea of the context, right? And then that being the weighted measure of the evaluation, right? I mean, that, mm-hmm. that, that to me is senseless, right? So, I mean, that, that needs, to, and that doesn't need to be reformed. That needs to be severed. It needs to be, it actually needs to be eliminated, and then also in the meantime, what does it mean for folks like yourself to actually go in to deepen the commitment to a justice-centered lens and say to folks, because in teaching, the thing that, that would always frustrate me is like people are so damn nice about this, right? And we, we we're unwilling to say to folks, look, this may not be for you, right? Yeah. And I'm not, and I'm not going to, and if I'm going to do justice by these young folks, I'm going to advise you to leave. Right. I mean, like that, like people are so fearful of that conversation. Right. And I think that becomes important. That's, that's an integral conversation to be able to have with folks and say, look, Mm -hmm. if you're not here, I don't want you in front of a bunch of black and brown babies. And you have no understanding of yourself or the work that you're trying to do, or the situation that your young folks are in, I do not need you here, right? In fact, it will do me better that you're not here, right? right. So I think this thing around, and I, and then the other part of that is getting folks there who understand that, right? right. And I think another thing around the meantime, in the meantime is getting folks out of this savior complex, right? Right. If you think you are here to save black and brown babies, please leave. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like that, that thing around, like I would always come to folks, you know, the first thing you say, if I, if I hear anyone say, well, I, I want to teach because I just love kids. Nah, mm-mm. That's that, that can't, that can't be the, that can't be the commitment here. Right. That's a, that's a, that's the commitment. If all things are equal, but you are in a fight for yeah. justice, right? You're in a fight. So how will you demonstrate solidarity in your fight to support young people's claim of their humanity, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I think we miss... Gloria Lassen-Billings would always, always mm-hmm. reminds us of the deeply intent... the, the deeply political intention of teaching, right? And I think we, you know, in a lot of teacher ed programs, a lot of teacher prep programs, we run away from that, right? We want to make it this nice thing that's still around order compliance and then Mm -hmm. productive citizenry. Right. Now, a critical critical question, you know, that, you know, when you start to engage folks with critical questions, then young people will respond and say, well, look, does this place even need to exist? Right. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's what we fear. Right. And I think this is important for folks to enter the conversations there. Right. Not looking at it, not looking at it as building up to it, but starting there. Right. Mm-hmm. Like day one. Right. In the preparation of teachers, look, here's here's what we're going to be doing. If you're not down with this, this spot is not for you. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think just being intentional about stating that, right? And I think a lot of times we get into this backpedaling and the backpedaling just gives us more to the same. I think, again, I think I see young people as fulfilling their destiny. I think the most important work will be when the dust settles mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, organizers always talk about the most important time is the time between protests. Mm -hmm. And the protest is to awaken folks, but now the protest is also the reminder of the work to be done. Good point. And I I think that, you know, as folks are weary and tired, Mm -hmm. we have to be explicit and intentional around the ways that we are able to replenish ourselves. Yeah. And I think that has to be part of our liberation condition right mm. the justice condition has to include how we replenish ourselves mm-hmm. but at the same time pushing still pushing and stating that reform is unacceptable right yeah. we cannot you know we cannot say that this thing is good it's just bad people in it the whole thing is bad and we mm-hmm. need to think about the ways we need to learn from people who have operated fugitively in those spaces to remind of, of of what is what, because like the thing I always say is we know though we've had those good teachers in our lives. Those good teachers were very little, had very little concern about schooling. Mm -hmm. Right. In fact, a lot of those good teachers were often in trouble with administration because of what they were doing. Right. So now I think we can learn from them in terms of moving towards abolition and mm. thinking about what our work can look like. So and just something to end on. We can think about the elimination of high stakes, standardized testing. We right. can literally engage getting rid of grades and weighted systems. Right. University of California system just got rid of the ACT and SCT as a requirement. Mm hmm. Right. No one has died because of their inability to take a standardized test. Yep. Right. So now if we understand those things to be true, then our most radical visions of what education look like, we now have a window to enact Mm -hmm. those spaces.
0: Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEW 107.7, Brattleboro's local access radio station. You can catch Indigo Radio either locally on this on 107.7 FM on Sundays at noon or anytime on SoundCloud. You can just look us up, Indigo Radio, or on iTunes podcast. And also look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, We have a lot happening, not just the radio. We have study groups. Um, Current study group is Deconstructing Whiteness. We also have a a professional development coming up with the Spark Teacher Education Program. And that leads us into um, our next part where I talk with the Spark Teacher Education Institute's co-director, Michaela Sims. Um, We have been speaking with Dr. Stovall, Dr. David Stovall, who is a professor of educational studies and African American studies at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And he's he talked to us about what it looks like for teachers being educated in teacher education programs. And one thing he said was that he he referred to Gloria Latson Billings, who um, said that teaching is a deeply political uh, act. It's a there are deep political intentions in teaching so now turning to spark teacher education institute we've been training teachers for 18 years it was started by um dr janaki natarajan Um, she is from southern india she's also worked and fought alongside liberation movements in Africa and nonviolent movements in India and many other parts of the world. So she brings that to the program. And it isn't, you know, 20 years ago, it was so important to have a teacher education program that centered social justice and equity. It's It's been hundreds of years, right? That people uh, have been saying that education needs to be restructured, starting with W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Doctor Du Bois, Doctor Anna Julia Cooper, Doctor Carter Woodson, back in the you know eighteen hundred, late eighteen hundreds, and early nineteen hundreds. We're talking about, and all the way to to more recently to the 60s, the civil rights movement, the 70s. And Gloria Latson billings who uh, Dr. Stovall mentioned, right, wrote about uh, culturally responsive teaching. And so it isn't 20 years ago, but, you know, over 100 years ago that people have been struggling to train teachers to restructure the education system Um, So that is where I place the SPARK Teacher Education Program. Um, And I ask the co-director, Michaela Sims, about what the program is, what is the pedagogy of the program, and how does it fit into what Dr. Stovall said of training teachers to teach fugitively. And much like what Dr. Stovall said, that this is a moment when there's an opening, Right. And um, Michaela Sims, who's the co-director of Spark, also said that, you know, right now there's a sort of an open mindedness.
3: Spark Teacher Education Institute is a social justice based teacher education program in the state of Vermont. The primary focus is for teachers to have an experiential um, program where they spend a year in the in the classroom, but also they're learning about the political economy of teaching and learning. Our basis really is questions, questioning how do we question ourselves first, primarily questioning ourselves, Um, questioning what we teach, what should we teach, questioning the systems in which we're teaching and the world at large. So I would say that's the heart of the program to really analyze the world in which we live and teach in. Uh, and at the same time, putting the students in the center of our work. And the, the students are always a center. And I think that there, people think of a lot of reasons not to teach. But anyone that I know that loves teaching says that the students are at the center. And for us, that's why, That's another reason why you spend the whole year in the classroom is because is you're able to understand the craft with the student in mind. Because you also, just like a teacher that's already in the position, are spending your, all your days with the kids.
0: So uh, linking that, so that's a, a very particular kind of pedagogy. Yes. Um, and how does that pedagogy kind of link with, and you've already sort of mentioned it in terms of political economy um, of education, right? Maybe we could go a little bit more into that and how that might link with what uh, David Stovall said about, you know, quote Gloria
5: that's billings of how teaching is deeply
3: political. Um, how how is that linked? I think that one of the the first things is that people misunderstand the word political, and they think that it's about electoral politics. That politics is about like Democrats and Republicans, but really, um, a simple way to. Uh, talk about what politics what political means is to say that it's about power relations about the power relations in our society um and everything you utter is political it has a a political base but we're not taught to think that we're taught to think that they're neutral spaces and that's just not true and so if you're not analyzing them that means you're going along with what already exists and we're about questioning what exists and and deciding, and some people may decide, even after the program, that they do want to go along with the the status quo or life as it is, because that, that behooves them. Um, but our mission is to set up people to ask questions about that, even if ultimately they end up choosing a different side. That education isn't always about learning. And for me, that's what SPARK is about. It's about learning at its heart, at its core, and that um, The educational system itself isn't always about learning and so I think that spark is about who do you want to be as a person which is why it's also applicable to people who don't end up in a classroom and not all of our students end up in the classroom Um, and I think that right now we're at a point in time when people are asking questions about who they are in relation to society they're all clamoring for these books which reading books is really important Um, and like looking at the Looking for the mailman, like, when is my anti-racist book coming? Um, but that and I, that is important. And I'm not like, I'm kind of making a joke, but I think that reading is really important. But you also need to be in a space where you can take those conversations a little further than just reading a book. Um, and, and Spark is one of those places um, that, that helps you do that. I think that um, it's taking a risk. Uh, but most important work is, and because questioning yourself is always the beginning. And being in an environment where um, you can be questioned is when you're gonna learn. It's not the, the way that we've learned. I think that um, how I learned, uh, it was, you know, I was in a classroom with a bunch of people and, who were trying to figure out what the teacher wanted. And I think that that's true, it's still true and our graduate students do that sometimes, but we're not about what we want, we're about your learning. And so what's gonna push you to that edge to learn? And right now is an important time. People really seem open to trying to figure out what is their place in society and how is it possible for them to make change? Um, And understanding both the politics, the power relations in our current society, and the economics, which are pushing also are deeply in relationship with um the power relationship um, of understanding that and really being able to convey that to the students mm-hmm. so that they are able to make the same choices because when you're not making when not you're not choosing is still choosing right 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 you know and so unless we have our eyes wide open we're just going along with whatever and and it, and, and right now what is what's going what's going along seems better right like mm-hmm flags are changing, monuments are coming down, and so people are going with that flow, how to be anti-racist, how to, anti-racist baby, like, all these different things, um, but that shifts course really easily. Yeah. yeah. And so, what road do you want to be on? In mm-hmm. the long run. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and not just right now, but, like, as things go forward, and as things shift, and people are not, don't have their eyes on equity. Where where are you going to be?
0: Welcome back. That was Michaela Sims, who I interviewed. She is co-director of Spark Teacher Education Institute. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WBEW 107.7 FM. Where are you going to be in the long road, the long view Where are we going to be? And I really appreciated what Dr. Stovall said about the protests tell us the work that we need to do. And the real work happens in between the protests. It's the unglamorous work that we do day to day in the schools, outside of schools, I'd like to uh, point the listeners now to two things. One is Spark is having a professional development. It is really a, a teacher inquiry. It's more of an inquiry model which goes in line with our pedagogy um, rather than someone telling you what's up or telling you what to do or what is. Our Professional development um, starts in July. It is uh, eight hours on meeting on Zoom and seven hours work outside of Zoom. We have three strands. One is early education. Another is humanities. uh, And another is STEM. Um, We have uh, Atasi Das, who is a PhD candidate at CUNY, who's working specifically on uh, critical numeracy. So, I think it's a, it, it's a really that strand, uh, I think it will be very interesting. And she will be co teaching with Corey Sorensen, uh, who is an elementary school teacher here in Vermont, uh, myself and Becca Polk. Uh, Becca is a, a middle school teacher, and I am currently a PhD student at UMass Boston, and I also teach in community college. Uh, as well as in Spark, and we'll be doing we'll be working with the uh, teachers in the humanities strand, and um, we have the early education. Uh, Michaela Sims, who is the co-director of Spark, um, along with Vicky uh, Seni and um, Lauren. We'll be working with the early education strand and elementary as well. So we have three strands. Um, we're going to kick off the professional development with the reading uh, letter to a teacher by James Baldwin. So we have this professional development. For more information, please email us at sparkteacheredvt. So spark is S-P-A-R-K V T at gmail.com for more information on the pricing of the professional development. And we also have a form that uh, you'll fill out. Uh, The other portion is we will be having a a informational session over Zoom on Monday, July 13th and Monday, July 27th at one o'clock Eastern Standard Time um, over Zoom. If you're interested in the Spark Teacher Education Institute informational session, please also email uh, sparkteacheredvt at gmail.com for the Zoom link. Um, And we are going to uh, end this show with a really amazing Peace and love. How y'all feel? (laughs) This is how y'all
2: feel. Brothers, y'all alright? My name is Erica Badu, also known as Badula Oblingada. Also known as Sarah Bellum, also known as She Eel. Also known as Manuela Maria Mexico. Also known as Fat Belly Bella. Yeah. And welcome to the tiny desk by way of Apple Tree Cafe. I'll be your host this evening. On bass, we got Brother B. We got Kenneth on sax. We got Keon on trumpet, Dwayne Kerr on flute, back behind me on percussion, that's Frank Mocha on drums. This evening, that's the heartbeat of the situation. That's my son, Seven. I'm just kidding, that's not Seven. His name is Delta Nine, they call him Good Foot. right piano this my md we've been together for years and years all of us his name is rc williams right. you know what i want i want a
6: rim shy. hey diggy diggy the rim shy. hey come on a rim shy. hey diggy diggy the rim shy. hey come on i want a rim shy. hey diggy diggy rim The band today I ain't thinking about you. I came to hear my drama play. Boom, clack, boom, clack.